Hello, everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon, with another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. And today we have another rock star guest joining us. He is Philip Umo. He joins us all the way from France. He is the CEO and founder of CrowdSec. Check them out. It's an open source multiplayer firewall uh, that's able to analyze visitor behavior and provide an adapted response to all kinds of attacks. Very cool. Uh, and there's a huge open source component to it. He is using crowd power to generate a global IP reputation database to protect user networks. We're going to hear about more of that here uh, in a minute. Uh, but also, uh, what you may not know about uh, Philippe is that he has created five startups, seated 10 of them, which is amazing. And in his spare time, he's a public speaker and a drone pilot and likes to ride horses. I <laughs> Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you, my arch. You know a lot about me and I also love pinballs, but that's for another conversation, I guess. <laughs> ah, I do too. I you know, I I've we've I've wanted to get a real pinball machine, and a real one, not a digital one, an old one, the analog kind with a steel ball. Well, you got four of them. I got four of them. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Those are so much fun. Yes, they are. And now, you know, timeless and for all generation, I see my kid or these friends playing on them. And, you know, it's it's not digital, yet they are totally fascinated. So, you know, all world still has good stuff. Oh, it is. I mean, the, the, the mechanical clanging, bouncing around and all the lights and alarms going off. That, well, it, you know, that was my generation growing up. So I guess I dated myself. There we go. Uh, <laughs> so. Philip, one place we want to start, given all the tremendous work you've done, we want to know your origin story because I, we think you were a network engineer at one time uh, and and then you left a job to become an entrepreneur and become self-employed. How did that happen? Uh, give us a little backstory here of yeah, uh, sure. how you I think that you transition. Know the transition is natural somehow because there is 5% of the population that is actually made not to work for others, but try to get the group to work with them. Uh, this is the lead, natural leadership or something like this. And it's, it dates back from the ancient time, you know, Cro-Magnon and things like this. If everybody yes. was would be leading, then the group would die. If nobody would be leading, then the group would die. You know, and yeah. there are so many <laughs> cases where the group would die that nature decided that 5% would lead and the other would help build, organize, discuss, exchange, sometimes have headache because they were precursors of potential problems and hazards in the environment. So people that nowadays have headaches are the ones that were the uh, sensitive person in the groups that would detect the weather changes. Did you know about that? So I did if not you ask know. Me... <laughs> this, this is fantastic. Keep going, please. So if you tell me where it comes from, it comes from a long, long time ago. But more precisely and more accurately, it dates back from my 14th or 15th. I told my parents, I don't want to be uh, working for someone. I want to run a company of my own and have my group working together. And I'm pretty sure I can do that. So my parents had the only reaction they could have, say, finish your study first. And they were right. So <laughs> I made my engineering, right? And uh, during this time, I met with an incredible person. And this one guy was the one 
cracking games on Atari ST uh, computer. So we we had those really? games, and being kids, ten year old or twelve year old, we had no budget to buy games actually. So we are having those cracked games uh, that we would exchange for the post office, right? And uh, Every time I would load a game, I would see this logo of this guy. You know, it was running around in circles. Yeah. And I was like, I cracked it. And I was like, wow, those guys, he, those, this group is so impressive. Fast forward in time, I'm enduring my engineering studies with this guy. I meet him physically and he's a student too in the same school as I. And I, wow, it's you. Yeah, it's me. So you were the one cracking the games I was playing when I was a kid wow. being 10. Yes. But how old were you? Well, 10. Sorry, you were cracking game in Assembler. You were 10. Yes. What are you doing today? I'm doing cybersecurity. Show me the oh, fucking wow. rabbit hole. Show me the rabbit hole. Show me <laughs> oh, how man. deep this thing goes, right? So this is my how I came to like security. So I was working for a bank during my student time. I didn't like it so much. And I decided to create my company right after school. It was 2000. People were paid a hefty amount of gold uh, to just join a company as uh, engineers. I was like, no, I'm going to do it my way. So at pasta, drink beers, but not much money in the pocket. And then, you know, this company took off slowly but surely. And after six, uh, 17 years, I sold it and created a new venture. Congratulations. Yeah. And during this time, I was uh, pretty much endorsing all the roles. But the one I liked the most was Pentester. I did a lot of red team pen tests. So by then it was like, do whatever you want as long as you get in and you tell us how. It, it was basically the contract, you know? So it was a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of learning curve. I loved it. And then I switched to the business side like 10 years ago, uh, doing business development, being CSO, being CMO and stuff like that. Love it too. Uh, so I'm kind of a hybrid profile that betrayed the, the technical front to, to become the, <laughs> the dark side guy that does business. I don't know if you betrayed them. I think it's an inspiring story because, you know, th there's this impression that, uh, especially in cybersecurity, that there's a back room of people in hoodies that are just working and, and you never see them. And uh, it shows that if you want to be daylighted, you can be daylighted and you can be what you want to be if you, if you have the perseverance and the intention of doing it. And most of us, we need variety, you know, otherwise the, the mind gets bored. And when you get bored, you're not that oh. good. And on top of that, being a pen tester, you can only be that kind of uh, person for eventually eight to 10 years, because after you have a family, you have friends, you cannot dive continuously into new exploits, new techniques and so on. And you just have to settle down and let, you know, pass the, this to someone else. And I had a very brilliant right arm and the guy took over and is now my CTO, by the way. That's fantastic. And you know, that is the number when we, if you go back and look at some of our old episodes, what there's a, been a lot of people, younger people that we've had on that wanted to start their life off as pen testers. It seems to be the number one thing in cyber. It's like, I want to be a pen tester. Uh, you know, I want to be an ethical hacker. That's the term everybody uses. But you're absolutely right. And for our listeners, take his advice seriously. Because um, that that's absolutely correct. You know, after a while, you do get bored and, and you do have to settle down. And it's a profession where you have to be on top of your game all the time. And it's just the way it is. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of people who think about becoming an entrepreneur and and want to be a leader. What do you think are the biggest hurdles 
in making that transition? It seems for you, it was natural. You're a natural leader, but still there must've been some hurdles. Yeah, I, you know, I like history in this and I had the chance to be able to connect when I decided I would take these things in hand. And I was six, so I was actually the age of my kid currently. And what happened is the school is we were bullied by taller, stronger kids that was you know, doubling their years and tripling their years. And they were just taller and wider. So we couldn't do much. And I was tired about that. And at some point in the schoolyard, I decided I would federate everyone and put them, you know, in front of their reality. We were 50, they were three. So they would lose the game. So at some point, we were only stopped from hanging them uh, because the, the teacher were like, what the heck is happening here? And they saw the 50 of us circling the three guys. And that day, it changed my personality deeply and forever. I understood two things. One, if you want to win over uh, these kind of problems, you have to team together. And two, if you can be the leader of it, it's even better. So this was a life-changing experience. And I just, wow. you know, years after a Shrink found it in my personality. So that was very interesting. And then, you know, what it wow. takes is, and the weird thing is people think you're not ducting because you see, oh, you're the one selling the story. You're the one, you know, on the TV, uh, you know, sets and stuff. But the reality is you duck. You're adopting constantly. It's your role to not be sure about something, be, being disbalanced about something and find solution against that disbalance. And where people expect you to be comfortable and confident on everything, internally, at least for myself, I'm adopting. And I cannot show I'm adopting, whereas I should adopt constantly. And this is a very uh, tricky situation where uh, you shouldn't get too confident with yourself. You should always take in consideration whatever is happening around you and your surrounding, what's going well or wrong, what could go wrong also in the future. Anticipate those and lead the team without doubting or without showing any doubt. Show that you know the past, you know where you're heading and so on. So it's an interesting mix um, of schizophrenia somewhere. <laughs> you know, you what you're describing is you have to be very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Exactly. And making sure on the outside, you are very directing that, it, you know, it doesn't show through. And I think that is the part that many people psychologically struggle with that we've seen, you know, when you're thinking about leaving a comfortable job that gives you a salary every two weeks, and you're going to give that up for an unknown, that's not an easy decision to make. And if you make it, a lot of times people find they weren't cut out to do it. Yeah, and reciprocally, if you live in a job that is paying every two weeks, but you're not, you know, you don't, you feel uncomfortable, you feel you don't belong here, like in the Matrix, as a bug, you know, something you're like, <laughs> you don't feel right, it just doesn't feel right. It means you were not meant for that. And I tried to be an employee. I, I really honestly tried and always failed. Honestly, it, it's not made for me. I cannot be an employee. And um, that doesn't work. And um, nowadays, I think uh, the uh, entrepreneurship evolved a lot. Startups evolved a lot. So if you are a professional and have, you know, skin in the game or tech skills that are unique or whatever, you should ask to have shares, meaning this company is as much my company that it is my uh, coworker company. They all have shares in the game, meaning it's a totally different thing of being a leader of someone that is partaking into an adventure and will get fruits out of it and not just you 
but you're leading them because they accept your leadership because they think you're the yep. person proper and fit for that job. But on the other end, they are also enriching your, themselves and not just you, which is super important uh, now that the you know, workforce is is shifting toward retirement. So on average, there will be one people, re one person retired for one active person in 20 years from now in most countries, in most modern countries. So meaning the people that are now coming in the market are gold, pure gold. So you cannot hire them on the chip and you cannot not associate them if they have the skills and the competencies. So obviously, it changed totally the way you perceive entrepreneurship and the way you should uh, react and interact with people. You know, um, the model you're describing, there was another gentleman way back when that people may be familiar with, and you might be familiar with Tom Siebel, who started Siebel Systems. No, um, I don't know him directly, not personally. No, he became, uh, well, uh, he eventually sold his company to Oracle. And mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of millionaires created in his organization. And he gave the option to his employees of taking whatever percentage of their salary they wanted as shares in the company. Mm. So there were some people who took their entire income as shares in the company. And when the company was went public, it uh, created millionaires. Yeah, it created. I remember uh, his admin. It was millions and millions and millions of dollars. And <laughs> I don't think she's an admin anymore, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's an intro, it's a story that dates back about two decades. And, uh, that was the first that I had ever heard of that model that you're describing now. Uh, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. We see a vacuum in the market space. Cybersecurity is an area where the demand for people is far outstrips supply of available good talent that so people need to be creative and and you want people to be a part of your organization right you don't want them to just be employees you want them to feel like they're a part of something yeah absolutely specifically when you run a company that is based on the crowd and in a community i mean if you don't act like this internally you don't drink your own potion and besides we are selling you know knowledge and there is one thing that is absolutely fantastic with knowledge the more you share it you more you enrich yourself it's not like, you know, a physical good. If you split it, you have just half of it, right? But knowledge, the more you share it, exactly what you're doing with this podcast, actually, man, the more you share it, the more you enrich yourself. And that's why dealing with virtual uh, goods like this, with data or with knowledge, is so enriching. Very well said. So let's let's talk about cybersecurity. I, I believe I read uh, somewhere while we were researching your background that uh, you use the term, quote, that a lot of people take the Captain America approach to cybersecurity. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, so for the last 40 to 50 years, what we see is all type of organization, big and small, no matter the budget, being breached. And the way I interpret it, it's the following. They defend on the stance that is something like along those lines. They create a super soldier. So this corporate entity create a super soldier with tremendous tools, which could be laserized with sure. fantastic data, you know, the, uh, the goggles that see through things, the x-ray goggles. And then they have the Batmobile and then they have the Captain America shield and the jetpack and everything. But there are still one soldier, super equipped soldier. Okay. But one soldier against an army. 
And what we've, what proved true over the years is that when you fight alone against an army, except in Hollywood, you die. Period. You lose. Yeah, that's all. Absolutely. And it's exactly what's happening. So the CrowdSec approach is the following. If you want to beat an army, you need a bigger army. And since we are numbering the guys 10,000 to one, I mean, the bad guys 10,000 to one, we have an edge here that we need to leverage to beat them at their own game because we are just more numerous. And it narrows down to another problem. It's about complex and complicated. There is a misunderstanding about the cybersecurity problem. People think it's a complicated problem. A complicated problem is like Einstein solving uh, gravity with relativity, special relativity, right? So this was a yeah. complicated problem for sure. But a complicated problem can be solved by one person. Extremely smart, okay, but one person, one genius. A complex problem is sending people to the moon. Even though you're Einstein and super smart, there's no chance you send anybody to the moon, even though you know about gravity, because you need a lot of different skill set to be right. able to put together, assemble a, a rocket, put people inside and send it to the moon. And for the last 40 years, we treated the cybersecurity problem as a complicated one, whereas it's a complex one. That's why here again, we need collaboration. That's, uh, that's a very interesting way to look at it. So more of a beehive approach. Absolutely. Right. Uh, if, if we were going to be analogous to something and that, uh, and it's a complex versus complicated. Yeah. We see that a lot. And you look at the biggest, you, you mentioned, you look at all the breaches, these companies, JP Morgan, you know, CNA, I think, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, not CNA, AIG uh, got breached, Target got breached. These organizations have immense budgets and immense departments, and they're still not able to mount a, a complete defense. No, and no. Part, and I don't think they ever will. I mean, personally, there's always going to be vulnerabilities that are unknown. That, that's just the way life goes. Uh, so you can't secure everything. But in your, what does your approach to, to address that issue where the, that world of unknown unknowns, those zero days, those things that if you are taking the approach of a beehive um, where someone is exploiting something that you don't know about, how do you think your approach addresses that or does it not? Well, specifically, the unknown is a complex thing uh, because uh, you know what you don't know, obviously. But what we know for sure, I'd rather go from the point where what we know. And what we know is there's an infinite number of domain names. You know, you just have to have a number after it. And, you know, domain names okay. are infinite. Okay? okay. There's an infinite number of ash. Because if you change one byte into a malware, there's a different ash, right? So yep. domain name ashes are an infinite number. IP addresses are in finite number. Great number but finite, nevertheless. Yes. So this is what you could consider a resource. And this resource is precious to cyber criminals. You know, this is point one. And what they do is they use those resources to scan you, to inject malware, to try passwords, to scalp product from a website, to enumerate numbers from a VOIP system, to check credit card numbers and so on. Every attack as one common point in the world is carried through a public IP address. Yes. Right. Or not every, because there are Bluetooth and stuff like that. But if we ex exclude those things, like publicly speaking over the internet, 
there is one common point. Everybody use an IP address to reach out that target. So what we are looking at is a way to shrink the number of IP addresses they can use by burning them as soon as we detect them on a large scale and releasing them as soon as we know it's clean and it's not used anymore by a cyber criminal. So meaning if the guy buys a VPN access and use it, okay, he's going to use it for, I don't know, an hour, two hours, two days, three months, whatever. Yeah. So we will see it on the radar because the network is so big nowadays. We have hundreds of thousands of machines running, reading their logs and checking if an IP address is commonly attacking a lot of people. And if we see this kind of address, we'll burn it. When it's burnt, most likely the cyber criminal will release it and change to a new one. But the point is the network is so big and so, you know, uh, quick to react that we will burn the new one extremely quickly as well. So the goal of CrowdSec is to use the crowd to have a fully dynamic block list. Okay. And you, wow, and you're addressing this at the most fundamental level, which is the IP address, because everything has to originate from somewhere, and that is the origination point. Yeah, and it's a scarce resource. So this is where we strike. Makes a lot of sense. And why open source, though? Why do it with open source? Yeah, because actually money is the first friction to adoption. Whatever you're doing in life, you know, if you have to pay, it's a friction. So if Waze would have cost back in the day just $10, it would have never become Waze in the first place. So um, friction, uh, this, this friction we want to remove. So let's make it free, right? Because the, the product is made to gather signals and what we sell is the data. So the product as such, we gather signals has to be free makes sense. So if it's free, let's make it open source as well, because we were open sourcer forever. We are really interesting, uh, interested in this community and this uh, uh, thought uh, process. So we said, okay, let's make it open source so that people can contribute and that they can check that it's not a new solar wind in the making. You know, solar wind was this editor that, you know, yeah. uh, actually had closed source and it was rigged and the people used their product and they were backdoored and so on. Not, not because solar wind wanted it. It's because they were compromised. Here, yes, they were. Yeah, the, the, the source code is open and, and you can check it. And by the way, it has been audited many times. So we know it's clean. So you can install it on your software, hardware, wherever you want. You can put it in a box. You can adapt it to whatever context you have. So that so then two questions on that. And I think you started to uh, direct us to an answer on one of them, but I'm still going to ask it directly is, how do you then monetize an open source platform and secondly, how do you control the development cycle on an open source platform to where if you're able to monetize it, a paying customer is going to be expecting regular updates? Yeah, so I'll tackle the second one if you're okay and then go to the first one. So okay. on the aspect of how we deal with our roadmap, obviously the community has been influencing a lot the roadmap and now clients are also influencing the roadmap because they say we need this, we need this Palo Alto connector. So typically... Okay. Palo Alto, if you're using it, you're probably a large company. So you're probably not on the free plan. So uh, obviously the community didn't ask for it directly, but the power users and the company were asking for it. So it's a constant arbitration in between what we're doing ourselves and what we deem is uh, worthy of our time or our clients are asking. But it's not so complicated to put together actually as a balance uh, because the team is large enough because we have revenues. And the revenues that are coming from companies that want to get the global picture on a constant basis. So if you use a free product, you're protected by the community block list, by the product itself. But if you are a premium member or an enterprise-grade client, you would get real-time 
information about new IPs popping on the radar or disappearing, you would have access not only to the 25,000 or 35,000 IPs that are in a block list, but to the 15 million we know about. You will have premium services you can leverage online with a SaaS console, which is super cool. You can, uh, you know, uh, act on decision, delete them, add them, uh, include other block lists you already have from other sources. So we provide extra services and obviously we retain all the attacks that were sent against you. Seven days for free, one year if you pay. So it's pretty easy to cut, uh, to, to, to have a line in the sand saying, guys, we're offering a, a ton lot for free. Now you understand that we also have to make money. So this is the line in the sand. And on this side of the line, okay. it's paying. And honestly, the committee was very understanding on that. They were scared at the very beginning, thinking, oh, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be free. Now that they understand the model, they're okay with it because they say, okay, we'll never be screwed up because, you know, the guys are clean with their model. We know where they make money. So so that that leads to another couple uh, things here. Uh, Third-party risk. And this we've seen come up um, multiple times just anecdotally in our own discussions with prospects where when you introduce the notion of open source, they get... There's some companies that have legal teams and departments that get very uh, anxious with open source because they're like, it represents a third-party risk that we can't uh, hold anybody accountable for. Because it is open source. It's crowdsourced. So. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, it's Accountability is one thing, but... You are, you are held accountable for something only if you are making uh, specific promises around it. Here in open source, what we promise is it's free. It's The code is open. You can check into it. Uh, the licenses we are using are not leaky, meaning if a license has another model than our own, we are not infected by the license model. So the, we are a mighty license. And if someone is using a Afero license, for example, we won't use their product or their components because we don't want to have a leak in between the licenses, we want it to, to be clean. Now, premium users are getting support. They have uh, support from our uh, company. We have a team to help them and we are accountable for that. Now, the free users that are using the MIT license, it's like if you're using a Debian, it's for free. You don't get any support. We're not responsible for what you do with the product, but it's free. So it's up to you also to assume that part. Very good. I'm glad you answered it that way because I'm sure there's some people out there that uh, can make use of that. We say when we say it, nobody believes us. But hopefully, coming from you, uh, <laughs> it's an extremely powerful model because you know, even though it's free, it's uh, we are building on the shoulder of giants. Uh, you know, and it's exactly what Einstein said when he was creating his theory. He said, you know, so many brilliant people have been there before me. And I'm building on the shoulder of giants. It's exactly what we're doing. I mean, this open source model was existing before us. It will exist after us. And people will stack on what we've done to create their own product. And as we did with their own product as well and tools. Now, the assembly of all of this is so freaking powerful. Come on. Is the, the, the Mars rover running anything else than open source? When, when I am no, asked, no, where open source is going, it's already on Mars, for God's sake. So where do you it's, want it to go? <laughs> uh, it, it's actually ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. People I mean, don't realize their appliances are using open yeah. source software. 
Yeah, most of the internet is made, is based on open source software. There is, to my knowledge, there is no private license that is not including at some point somewhere some part of open source. Just it just doesn't it, exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. I agree. You you wouldn't build even if it's a private license. You're not. There's so many great open source libraries available. Why would you reinvent the wheel? The wheel, absolutely. And and that's the point. I mean, if you're running a Linux system or a BSD system, you are probably using something like sixty thousand different type of components that are for free. You know, that are open source, all combined together. So your your OS is a patchwork of open source. And in Windows, there are so many licenses of open source that are used as well. So you just announced a big Series A round, and congratulations on that, by the Thank way. Thank you. <laughs> but when you look when you went to the VC community, was there trepidation on their part with open source and when Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> how how did you climb that mountain? <laughs> with pain and sweat sweat. But uh, well basically I had to pitch for my seed round 48 different VCs and for my uh, A round something similar, something like 50 VCs. You can take for granted that half of them won't get the model and will chicken out. And the other one are looking at you like a UFO. So either they are willing to take the risk and <laughs> thinking, love- okay, this, this has, this, I mean, why haven't we applied the concept of networking, network effect to cybersecurity? It's so obvious it has to exist already. You know, I'm taking the part that already went through the open source thingy, you know, because some of them are really, really having a problem with it. But once you have eliminated 50% of them, the other part is like, well, it has to exist because, you know, it's obvious that you need a, a network effect in cybersecurity. I'm like, you know what? The best proof is that it does not, that net, network effect are everything but discrete. If it's a network effect, you know about it already. I mean, that's the point of yeah. network effects. So if you don't know about it, it's because it's just, it doesn't exist already. That's period. And they were like, okay, we'll prove you wrong. And I'm still waiting for that. Um, the other, <laughs> no, no, it just doesn't exist. So, and also there's, there's something different here. What they saw that others didn't see, uh, most likely is that we are uh, analyzing something in a unique way. So there are several networks that are uh, spanning across the world at a world scale. Like, for example, if we take CrowdStrike, they're analyzing binaries on a world scale. Nobody can say anything against that. There are so many machines running CrowdStrike. Their XDR is great. They are checking into uh, the binaries day in, day out. So they have the behavior of the binaries and so on. So they are doing binary analysis on a world scale. You can talk about like Akamai that is doing kind of a WAF on a world scale, right? The web application firewall. So they see what's happening on a world scale as well. And there are honeypot systems. Some of them are very large, counting hundreds of, if not thousands of machines. But they are looking at the background noise of the internet and the automated exploitation of CVEs, right? So these are the three kind of networks that are detecting something on the global scale. What we are is different. We're detecting IP behaviors on a world scale, which is very different. No network does this so far, and, and even less in an open source way. So what we are doing is we are not saying, I don't know, CV, X, Y, Z. We can detect that. We can detect background noise. We don't do uh, fingerprinting of binaries or whatever, but we can detect also logical faults. For example, if someone is scanning a website to buy product automatically and resell them on eBay, you're not likely to detect it with the next year. And probably I don't care either. 
It's just a behavior thing, right? There are so many be things you can catch with behaviors that are not possible to catch with binary analysis Absolutely. or WAF analysis. And we are the only one running a world-scale network of detection of the behaviors associated with an IP address. And do you believe that malevolent IP address attacks are growing? So yes, uh, yes. I mean, several figures here. It's growing, but not at a huge pace. I mean, there are a lot of malevolent IP addresses. We see on average 15 to 16 million over a two-week rolling wow. period. And they are changing at a rate of 12% per week, roughly. So some of them are permanent members of the show. Like uh, <laughs> if you've not been visited by uh, number 31 Jingrong Street in China, you just do not exist over the internet for the last 20 years. This thing is pinging every machine in the world for the last 20 years with pinpoint accuracy, uh, looking for troubles. But there are a lot of addresses that are just, you know, uh, vanishing uh, over time or over a week also. So it's changing a lot. There's only 1.8% that are IPv6 so far uh, because the product is compatible with IPv4, IPv6. So it's not so much IPv6 yet, but it's growing fast. The trend is growing quickly on IPv6. Over the last six months, we saw 50% growth. So it, it, wow. it went from 1.2 to 1.6 very quickly, actually. Uh, 1.8, sorry, very, very quickly. So, yeah, that's the way, uh, that's the global thing we start to see uh, on the network level. So, the, the, see, you're describing a highly dynamic environment. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure the accuracy? that what you're labeling as being malevolent or has been released, how, how do you ensure the accuracy of that? So it's, it's probably, you're touching on the most important point here uh, because we are injecting block lists directly at the firewall, load balancer, reverse proxy, or WAF level, directly sometimes in your uh, workload that are dealing with the business. So we cannot be wrong. We cannot have a false positive. Okay, we cannot be victim of poisoning. So the two risks we have here is the first one is poisoning. So someone right. trying to trick to trick us into thinking that your IP, for example, is bad, but it's a false report. It's a false flag attack, if you want, right? Yeah. And the other one is making an honest mistake, like mistaking, for example, the Google boat for a boat that would be stealing your data online. So that would be the two risks we have. So how we deal with it is the following. The network is so large, that we need to have a consensus in the network in real time. So it's stream processing. So at any given moment in the day, we have a number of people expressing an opinion against an IP address. And those entities are so different because they are on different IP ranges, or, uh, running different workloads in different places and so on. And they have been installed at different times that we know that no cyber criminal can get hold of such a diversified network uh, in such a time. And if there are enough reporting uh, concurring on the fact that this IP ABCD is bad, then we inject it in a block list. And as long as the pressure on this IP address is above a certain threshold in the network, we'll keep it in the block list. And as soon as the pressure is going under this, under this threshold, we release it. So it's important to know that you are not considered into this uh, measurement when you're not six months into the network. Hmm. So you cannot spawn like a thousand machine and expect to be uh, uh, rigging the consensus. Um, so it's an extremely important component of CrowdSec also that we don't want to be uh, uh, perfect. We don't intend to block 99.99999% of attack. We consider that 92, 93, 95% is good enough as long as we don't have any false positives. 
because we are protecting you against 92, 3, 4, 5% of attacks directly with a reputation, and the 5% left are dealt with, with the, uh, to the uh, behavior engine because you have an agent running on, on the server that is still analyzing your logs. So if something is not caught by the reputation, it will be caught by the behavior. And if it's a binary related thing or whatever, it will be caught by uh, CrowdStrike, for example. So that way we actually not to carry over some uh, false positive and poisoning. Wow. Um, thank you for clarifying that because I'd, I'm sure a lot of people were thinking that question and that's a, that's a very interesting way to approach the problem. Well, we, we leverage the crowd to the last degree, you know, because since the network spans now 175 countries, hundreds of thousands of machines in different places, different IPs, different ranges, different clouds, different segments, vertical segments like retail, housing, whatever, uh, banking, That's media, cool. and so on. We have micro certs here. So, for example, IP addresses that are attacking banking uh, segment are probably, some of them are just attacking banking segment and no other thing because they have developed a specialized know-how to breach into a bank. So if they want to be efficient, they constantly are armoring banks. So if we see the same IP address in a bank vertical, but nowhere else in our users, we know that this IP address is vertically specialized into trying to screw up banks. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's amazing. Um... That's that's actually so cool. Uh, <laughs> what you're doing is is uh, is wonderful. Very cool concept. I, I love it. So I know we're coming up. We have three minutes left here. I wanted to also give you a chance to plug anything that you would like to. Uh, are you making any appearances? Uh, are you on any books? Writing any books? Being <laughs> part of it? Part of any charity events? Running a horse race? What whatever you'd <laughs> like our audience to know. <laughs> Well, guys, if you want to be entrepreneurs, it's a path you know you have inside yourself, right? So you just have to develop it and try to, to go for it as uh, right after the school, if you have enough connections around yourself and a bit of experience still. But, you know, before you have loans, before you have wife and kids or husband and kids, um, because then it becomes more complicated to take risk. So there are two periods in your life where you can take risk right after school or after one or two years of experience. And when you're in your 40s and you already have a buffer money-wise and you can afford to take risk, but you don't have the same, you know, the same stamina. So it's up to you, but I would do it like two, three years after school. It's the best moment in your life to take risk and be an entrepreneur. And as for all the listeners that are SecOps or TI hunters or SOC analysts, you know, join. It's for free. It's an army. We are building a bigger army than the one attacking you guys. And it's for free. So just try it. I mean, it's done by cybersecurity professionals who are bringing a lot of knowledge at the table. And if you like it, you can go premium. That's fine by us. If you pay us with signals, you pay us. If you pay us with money, you pay us. Anyway, we are willing to share this information with the whole world. So join the army. Fantastic. Uh, well, Philip, it's been a pleasure having you. Likewise. And, uh, and as you... Uh get on with this adventure i uh, would love to have you back as the as the story develops even further and we wish you the greatest success thank you Manoj. i'll be there and anytime I, you want me 